Hello, and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. I'm Katie Halper, and I'm joined every week by my co-host, Gabe Pacheco. Now, on today's podcast, we play you a really great interview that we did with Karima Stefan, and we also bring you some more of Ellie Valley, who we interviewed last week. He's the cartoonist and author of Diaspora Boy, Comics on Crisis in America and Israel. So today we have a great show for you. We are going to be speaking to Kareem Estefan. Can't wait. Can't wait. He's the author of Assuming Boycott, which is about uh, the boycott, the BDS movement, boycott, divest, sanction in Israel. And it's especially relevant because, of course, as we'll get to soon, uh, BDS is in the news because of a bill that's attempting to basically make it illegal to engage in. So, uh, and it's so close to BDSM. You know, uh, you know, maybe that might be a low-hanging fruit of a joke. But... A low-hanging fruit? <laughs> I'm making a little, like, what's this gesture called? Um, uh, pretend it's, I'm, I'm... It's very lascivious, the gesture yeah. that Katie Halper's making, it's, so... It's like I am I have a, a, a batch. A bushel. A bushel. Oh, yeah. a bushel. Oh, this is way too X-rated. I have a bushel of grapes that I'm... Uh, Touching, holding in my hands, but also like combing through with my fingers. Uh, yeah, it looks like you're ju- juggling grapes juggling in your grapes, hand. Juggling grapes, yeah. Juggling or cupping, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> and this has been our segment describing it what It looks you're like you're, doing. you're miming those uh, metal Chinese balls yes. that you uh, sort of circulate in your in hands. Your hand, totally, yes. yeah. You're making that motion. I'm making that motion. Or it could be seen as an almost flamenco move. Yes. Castanets. Very uh, Iberian Peninsula dancing. Exactly. I like how broad that was because it could include some Galician dancing. It doesn't have to be flamenco. We're all inclusive We're here. We're all inclusive. We don't even call them Spanish. It's it's different nations. We got Galicia. We got Catalonia, Valencia. The Basques the ba- are out there. And never forget the Basques because those are the ones who will really F you up if you forget them. The most <laughs> violent of all the autonomous regions. Uskadi. Okay. Also happens to be a linguistic mystery. No one knows where that language comes from. Uh, then, UFOs. <laughs> yeah. Are you positing that people are confusing BDS with BDSM and that's why they're passing, trying to pass legislation against it? Are they puritanical more than anti-Palestinian? Oh, 100%. Okay. One, I think it's, uh, it's all, it's all uh, PR and it's about branding. About branding. So if BDS came up with a better name, uh-huh. there'd then be people less... wouldn't be thinking that it had anything to do with leather masks. Right. And BDSM is, of course, something something sadomasochism. That's right. What's, what does B stand for? Um, something dumb. I really should look this up. I'm such a. I'm so clean. No you really one, did. Course, you really did no put one, me on the spot. No there. one wants to admit it. Okay. It is. Um, Bondage discipline sadomasochism. Okay. Bondage discipline <laughs> Thank sadomasochism. You. Thank you so much to Keith. What's your last name? I'll bleep it out. It's Price. You don't have to bleep uh, it out. All right. Keith Price. I don't know what your position on BDS is, but I know that you're pro-knowing and acknowledging. I appreciate your bravery in acknowledging that you know what it stands for. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I'm your host, Katie Helper, and as always, I'm here in the flesh, joined by Gabe Pacheco. That's me, Gabe Pacheco. I'm here. He is here. He is indeed present. Please make sure that you rate and review us on iTunes. Join our Patreon campaign. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. 
Again, patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show for great bonus content. You can hear the Katie Helper Show every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBAI. That's WBAI.org or 99.5 FM on the radio. Kareem Estefan is a co-editor of Assuming Boycott, Resistance Agency and Cultural Production, which was just released from Or Books. The book is a powerful compilation of scholarship and thought about the tactic of the boycott from South Africa to Israel and the new politics and culture it inspires. Kareem has published in Art in America, Bomb, and a host of other journals focusing on the interplay of artistic production and political and social issues. When he is not organizing the panels that produce the thinking and writing and assuming boycott, he's working towards his PhD uh, at Brown uh, in the Department of Modern Culture and Media. Welcome, soon-to-be Professor Kareem Estefan. Thanks so much for having me, Katie. Yeah, thanks for coming on. What is your position on, and, on BDS, boycott, divest sanctions, and do you remember when you first heard of it? I do. Um, so this is my personal position, I should clarify, rather than the book, since the book is an anthology of essays by people from varying perspectives, although certainly the majority of them support BDS. Um, but uh, for me, uh, I, I am Palestinian of origin. Um, my mom's mom and uh, my mom's father, who's no longer alive, were displaced from Jerusalem in 1948. Um, and since I was a college student, I, I had been involved in Students for Justice in Palestine, but it was really um, in 2012 when actually the organiza organization that I was working for, uh, a nonprofit public art um, organization called Creative Time, um, hosted a conference in which um, uh, there was an Israeli art organization basically Skyping in the conference, um, that I became aware of BDS. And, um, you know, there, there were a lot of debates following that among the arts community. I won't go into all of it, but it was about five years ago. And since then, uh, I've really become more actively involved in BDS as a writer, as an activist, um, as an editor. Um, and I should say a few things about it that makes it stand out. Um, so it was launched in 2005 by a coalition of Palestinian civil society organizations. And of course, it's a nonviolent campaign. Um, and, you know, Israel for so long has been saying and its supporters have been saying, why do they have to fight back with violence? If only they had their own Gandhi, that kind of thing. Um, and this is a, a nonviolent campaign with three clear demands, an end to the military occupation of Arab lands, full equality for Palestinian citizens of Israel and the right of Palestinian refugees to return to their homeland. And one thing that's really important to note about these demands is that they represent a political platform that can unite a Palestinian population that Israel itself has fragmented and displaced over the last 70 years. So there are refugees in and outside Israel's borders, residents of Gaza and the West Bank, East Jerusalem residents, and also Palestinians around the world. Um, and, you know, one of the things that's really interesting that gets explored in the book is how, of course, these demands um, find uneven support. Um, most liberals and basically, you know, every government in the world is against the 50 year military occupation. But for a lot of these people, um, the right of return, which is actually enshrined in United Nations law, is much more controversial because it would potentially apply to around seven million Palestinian refugees and basically transform Israel's own definition of itself as a Jewish state. Um, uh, but nonetheless, you know, this, this is a basic, you know, human right. Palestinians have remained 
uh, a huge refugee population denied access to their homes, often finding their families uh, split, unable to visit people that 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 they were formerly living with. And um, BDS is is the way to unite this fragmented population and get them to isolate Israel for all of this. So can you talk a little bit about the book? So our book is an anthology of essays by artists, activists, and scholars. And it started with a series of seminars organized at the Vera List Center for Art and Politics at the New School. Um, and that was with my co-editors, Laura Reykovich, who's the president of the Queens Museum, and Karen Tuoni, who directs the Vera List Center. And it's important to say it talks about, you know, examples of boycotts, both historic and contemporary, and not only um, uh, South Africa and Israel, which we've mostly been discussing, um, to focus on especially cultural boycotts and boycott campaigns organized by artists. And there's a long history of artists organizing against racism, sexism, war, for labor rights, for human rights, you know, boycotting cultural institutions. But we focus especially on the last few years um, where I think because of a number of factors, but um, especially the, the really inspiring uprisings from Cairo to New York in 2011, the rise of social media and online organizing, and also the fact that contemporary art discourse has begun to you know, center conversations about politics, the number of artist-led boycotts has, has taken off. Um, and this also you know, goes in the face of people who say, why only focus on Israel? Because many of the same artists who support BDS are also supporting many other boycotts and forms of kind of collective withdrawal. So there's an artist collective called Gulf Labor that has prevented the Guggenheim Museum from collecting their own works um, in, in protest of the new branch it's building in Abu Dhabi. And that, you know, that building is, is it's being built by migrant workers who are forced to work off exorbitant debts uh, for, for wages much lower than those they were promised. And often after having their passports stolen and facing violent repression for, for even organizing against these conditions. So artists have also boycotted a number of biennials, the Sydney Biennial, because its chairman was profiting from Australia's notorious offshore migrant detention centers. Manifesta, which was held in St. Petersburg um, in 2014, shortly after Russia passed a set of anti-LGBT laws, and the Sao Paulo Biennial is another one that's for receiving funding from Israel. But to just say, you know, this is really um, a widespread phenomenon um, happening, you know, uh, among artists and cultural workers right now. And BDS is is one campaign for justice among many. And um, BDS is really also actively pursuing lines of solidarity with 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 other oppressed people around the world. Um, so our our book is really an attempt to uh, answer some of these tactical questions, historic questions, um, questions about the meaning of censorship, dissent, uh, and also of transnational activism very broadly and cultural activism broadly. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, we, we bring those together through, through some of these debates around BDS in South Africa, but, but also many other campaigns. Do you think that part of the opposition to it is that it has the potential to be so successful? I do think so. And I think that the opposition has really grown in the last five years or so as it has, you know, made a lot of inroads in terms of academic associations choosing to embrace the academic boycott. Um, churches and uh, religious um, religious organizations that are choosing to divest from companies that invest in Israel's occupation. Um, and, you know, generally the tide is turning against Israel as it's embraced farther and farther right policies. 
Um, you know, for example, there was a Pew Research poll last year that showed the Democrats who identify as liberal sympathize um, more with Palestine than with Israel, and that's for the first time ever. Um, so Israel knows that it is being perceived increasingly as simply an occupying force that uses disproportionate violence uh, whenever it faces any kind of um, opposition or resistance from Palestinians. And facing this, they, they want to end the image of uh, you know, international solidarity for uh, nonviolent resistance, and instead, you know, project an image of intransigent anti-Semitism and, uh, you know, the threat of violence and uh, delegitimization of Israel. So, can you talk a little bit about how BDS actually works and functions? The first thing that um, should be emphasized is that BDS targets institutions and not individuals. Um, so, it is not, you know, targeting. Um, an Israeli academic saying you cannot um, have a conversation with this professor because he or she is Israeli. Rather, in terms of the cultural and academic boycott, when there are events that are explicitly sponsored by Israel or institutions that receive Israeli government funding, Palestinians are asking the international community to not engage with them. Um, to give a concrete example, this means that, for example, uh, Naomi Klein will publish a book of hers in Hebrew, but will not uh, publish it on a, a, a publisher, a press that receives state funding from Israel. Or um, in terms of uh, musicians, there's recently been the call to, uh, and it did not work out, to pressure Radiohead not to play Tel Aviv. Um, which was similar to the campaign to stop musicians from playing Sun City, the apartheid resort um, uh, in South Africa. And by the way, why is Radiohead performing in Israel? Cut to my playing I'm a Creep. But I'm a creep. I'm a what the hell am I doing here? What the hell? Right? I mean, I'm just saying, it works pretty well. I don't belong here. And that's just the cultural and academic boycott, I should say, which is the focus of uh, our book, Assuming Boycott, and also of, of my own work. But it, it, it's also about basically uh, stopping people from investing in companies that um, actively support the occupation, whether they're making, you know, um, technologies that are used in the in the border wall, um, or it's that they give technology to the Israeli army. And um, those are typically enacted at an institutional level, getting, you know, pension funds to remove these these companies from uh, from what they invest in, for example. And then there's also, you know, theoretically sanctions as, as a threat against Israel. But of course, we're far from that. Um, today, the United States gives uh, $3.8 billion of military aid to Israel every year, far from sanctioning it for its violations of international law. What's the ultimate goal? So the goal is, is to isolate Israel on the world stage and um, ultimately to basically form um, a, a transnational movement that can be strong enough to uh, really enact change where governments have failed to and where international bodies have failed to. Um, 
one of the things that's debated within our book, which I think is a really interesting and open question, and there are many of these open questions about the path that BDS takes. I don't want to sound as if I have it resolved or that other BDS activists have it resolved um, more to you know defend the reasons that make BDS necessary. Um, but you know, one of the debates is how can Israeli Jews uh, on the left or simply in support of Palestinian human rights engage BDS? Um, what does it mean that it will also necessarily, in some senses, isolate them? And how can they find other platforms to create, either with Palestinians or with the world community that aren't uh, supported by the Israeli state? Um, you know, I think that there, there's, there's a, a short-term goal of isolation of Israel, um, publicity of Palestinian demands, um, and blockage of some of the um, most, you know, repellent uh, sort of complicities between companies and, and the Israeli government. But what that looks in the looks like in the future is, is certainly, you know, um, up for grabs. And, and even at the level of what people see as a solution, BDS activists are not um, all on the same page. Certainly most support uh, a binational egalitarian democracy in Palestine, Israel, rather than the so-called two-state solution. But, you know, what the contours of that will look like, what even the right of return will look like, these these are certainly unresolved issues. Um, what are some of the debates within the pro-BDS movement? Um, so some of the debates, for example, are um, whether uh, uh, it does enough, in a sense, for people on the ground, mm -hmm. uh, I should say, both Palestinians and Israelis in the sense that um, uh, it is a largely international facing movement. And um, I don't at all want to speak for um, Palestinians living in uh, the occupied territories. My own situation is, is very different. And I've only spent uh, a number of weeks in Palestine and Israel. But, you know, their, their feeling about BDS is not necessarily always a direct connection to, um, to its tactics, although boycotts of Israel in various forms have been um, part of the Palestinian movement really, you know, going back to before um, Israel's inception with the great Arab strike of 1936 to 39, but also the first intifada, a largely nonviolent movement that included boycotts and strikes at its center. Um, so there, there are questions about how it connects to uh, the people living on the ground, including also um, Israeli Jews who sort of, you know, they, they do have, for example, a lot of state support for art and film that at least until recently with the um, coming of a cultural minister as far right as someone like Miri Regev um, were, were supported even if they were critical of Israel. And, you know, um, there are debates that are real and important about what you do when you really get, you know, close in terms of proximity, when you're not in the United States, which does not have, you know, a robust media discussion around Israel and Palestine and instead sort of uh, reflexively supports Israel to the tune of several billion dollars a year. Um, but when you're, you know, living in, uh, I don't know, Jaffa or Haifa, and um, you want to make critical collect culture together with Palestinians, um, what do you do? And so, you know, our, our, our contributors to the BDS section are largely uh, a combination of Israeli Jews and Palestinians living there and, and uh, abroad. And I think that basically um, there are a lot of conversations about how this, um, the, the function of, of uh, stopping uh, complicitous relationships 
can uh, end up opening new forms of co-resistance. Um, so BDS's platform speaks very eloquently about the difference between coexistence, as it's often presented, and co-resistance. Um, and you know, I think we're all trying to figure out exactly what, in the current climate, collaborative resistance looks like. So here's a question I always think about. Um, you're, you, for example, you're an, an academic, right? You're going to be a professor. Correct me if I'm wrong, but part of BDS is that if an Israeli academic uh, or producer of culture wants to come to uh, a country that's recognizing BDS, right, uh, or an institution, I should say, that's recognizing BDS, they have to pay their own way. They can't be sponsored financially by the institution with which they're associated or affiliated. They cannot be coming on 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 the money of a an Israeli institution. They could buy private individuals or in this day and age, who knows, GoFundMe or Indiegogo. Sure. But yes, that's correct. So, okay. What if there were a boycott called uh, against the United States, which you could argue violates human rights uh, as much as Israel does in, in one large part by funding Israel so much, right? How do you think American academics would respond to that? Do you think they would be in solidarity, most of them? Or I should say the ones who are recognizing or calling for supporting BDS here of against I, I think some would, but I don't think necessarily the same people would. I mean, there there are some significant differences. One, you know, I just want to say a, a boycott is a tactical move. It's a, a strategic move. It's not a, a moral position. Um, and so whether one embraces a boycott is largely whether one thinks in a given context it will be effective. Right. And sure. uh, the many differences between Israel and the United States in terms of, you know, size, position in the world, um, what precisely one would be protesting against, etc., might lead um, uh, many to um, think that would not be effective. But I think above all, the difference would be that, you know, uh, it would depend if, for example, indigenous Americans or African Americans, those who have suffered um, the violence of the, the United States empire in, in, in um, uh, most fully, whether they called for a boycott of the United States. Um, this was something that, you know, came up a, uh, a bit uh, at the beginning of, of uh, the Trump administration. I did hear conversations about whether the U.S. should uh, be boycotted academically because of the uh, Muslim ban, the travel ban. Uh, I don't think I really saw that conversation take off that much. Um, and I think that the most you know, important difference that we see is that this is explicitly a movement that is called for by Palestinians, by those harmed by um, Israel's policies. And you know, when one debates BDS, one often hears, why not boycott Iran? Why not boycott Saudi Arabia? Why not boycott okay. this and that country that has a reprehensible human rights policy? And, um, you know, th there are clear answers to some of those. Iran is being sanctioned by right. our government. It, does, it just There's no analogy when you have official sanction on a country versus, you know, near um, ubiquitous support from both political parties. Sure. Um, but there are also, you know, there's also a response that this should really be based on um, what those who are oppressed want and believe is effective, because here Palestinians are saying, this is what we think can change things. And we are asking you, the international community, to do this because the international community is not doing anything for us right now. Right. To hear the rest of our interview with Kareem Estefan, 
make sure that you become Patreon supporters. That's at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. And in this bonus extended interview, we talked to not only Kareem, the editor of Assuming Boycott, but we also talked to Adam Johnson. And Adam Johnson is, of course, the media critic, journalist. He's been on the Katie Halper Show before. He has a new podcast called Citations Needed, which is a great media criticism podcast that he does with Nima Shirazi. And Adam helped make that conversation even more interesting. So you're definitely going to want to become Patreon supporters to access that. Patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. And we also bring you some more of Ellie Valley, who we interviewed last week. He's the cartoonist and author of Diaspora Boy, Comics on Crisis in America and Israel. So here is Ellie speaking at a reading that he did for his book at McNally Jackson. I think you're going to really find it really interesting. And there's me. Actually, you know what? Holly. Holly was Jewish too, okay? I know it's ridiculous to be counting to even care, but that's how I felt when my father would ask, very nonchalantly, what people's last names were, what their mother's maiden names were, what town in Poland their grandparents came from. Made me feel like I was hiding, not from my classmates, but from my father, lest he know that I was assimilating. I felt just like Anne Frank. No, I didn't. And I'm sorry, I know, Holocaust, you can't do it anymore. Um, but the Holocaust is relevant, actually, because the reason for my father's panic was the concern that the Jews were dying out, and we needed to recreate what the Nazis had destroyed. I remember learning at a young age, too young of an age to be learning these things, that all my sperm was precious because it contained enough cells to make up for all the lives lost in the Holocaust. I don't remember the science. I don't know if it was per ejaculation or a week of masturbation or what, but you can imagine the pressure this put on me. Not to mention the ways I started thinking about sex. Anyway, I admit the joke was funnier when there weren't Nazis on the march in America. But we'll get to that, trust me. First though, I want to talk about my mom because pub- public psychotherapy is pretty uh, healthy and cheap. I never really understood or experienced the Jewish mother stereotype because my mom is nothing like it. In fact, if my dad was both reverent and controlling, my mom was sort of the opposite. Visiting my father, these are the books I would see. Sermons for the 70s. Sermons the year round. Best Jewish sermons of 5719 to 5720. A personal favorite, I have to say. Best Jewish sermons of 5725 to 5726. Not Not such a good year for sermons, it turns out. Coming back to my mom's, these are the books I would see. The Joy of Sex and Not on a High Shelf. Collected Letters of Van Gogh. My father would give me gifts like this. And my mom would give me gifts like this, which apparently is a dildo, I think, from a trip to Jamaica. Thank you, Mom. Um, She went there with her African-American boyfriend, whom she met in jail as his caseworker. It's a long story, but I feel like it's called multi-ethnic cred. And I want to get a photo of them together to show you, you know, so you'd be, because it's such a multi-ethnic crowd here, that you'd be impressed. Unfortunately, their breakup was acrimonious, and she destroyed all photos of them, so I had nothing. So I was like going to Photoshop her with somebody um, at home, but I figured that was dishonest, so I got her to say it into a tape recorder. Thank you. By the way, I did this presentation once in Israel, and going through customs, everything was fine, and I played this thing, and her voice was completely distorted and destroyed, and I'm convinced the Mossad is fucking with my mom, you know? And then I had her do it again, she's like, how many times do I need to say this in a tape recorder? 
Anyway, back to my family tree. This is my dad standing Dirty Harry style in front of the synagogue after it was defaced by a swastika. This is my mom after feeding us peyote, teaching us kumbaya. <laughs> but my mom was not always like that. In fact, uh, when they were married, they were both balei shuva, which I don't know if there's any Hebrew speakers here, but that basically means borderline psychotic. <laughs> it, it literally means um, born again Jew, let's just say, born again Jew. Here she is at a synagogue sisterhood brunch, the rabbit scene in the newspaper next to Mary Tyler Moore. That one's my mom, that one's like Mary Tyler Moore. Uh, the difference is my dad stayed with it and my mom didn't, partly because being a rabbi's wife was too constraining. Of course, the irony or paradox is that the obsession with continuity destroyed the marriage. But whatever, I'm over it. I don't like pity myself. I don't Photoshop my parents into old magazines because that would be a sign of mental illness. <laughs> Anyway, my mom left, she left it all, and apparently became a government spy. <laughs> After the divorce, they went their separate ways. My dad continued his religious life. Here he is organizing services on the Long Island Railroad, which is real, it actually happened. And my mom became a social worker, working with underprivileged kids in Albany. And that's how she met her boyfriend. Long story, uh, we don't have time to get into it though. Um, so in some ways I was caught uh, between the two, with these very different backgrounds competing for my attention and if you don't mind the melodrama, my soul. You can see my mom was really happy at this family reunion. But ultimately, if I have to choose between going to services on the LIRR and hang, playing jump rope with kids in Albany, I prefer playing jump rope in Albany. And yet, this is something that the ardent defenders of the faith do not seem to understand about my work. It is still my culture, and I'm still fascinated by it and fixated on it. It's a great reservoir of narrative and artistic inspiration, and I refuse to let it be defined by the schmucks. And I should add that it's not just that my mom stopped being religiously observant. She also brought me up with a certain unique perspective. You can see that in this letter that she wrote me when I was in summer camp, the same year that bar mitzvah photo was taken. Uh, here, this is how she closed it. The 4th of July is approaching, a time when we must remember the struggles that our forefathers endured to establish on this continent a nation independent of the Queen and King of England, which land was to subsequently become a far greater threat to and violator of human rights, both here and abroad, than the parental England ever was. However, we must perform our patriotic role and light a sparkler. My son, I know you will carry on the family tradition and fart on the flag. <laughs> oh, my love, mommy. I, I, I think it's really special, the ending, I think. So it should be no surprise that I identified so strongly with MAD when I first discovered it. Anyway, if I'm fascinated by and fixated on the Jewish stuff, the question becomes, will I go my father's route and draw it as adorable kittens singing the Israeli national anthem? Or will I grow my mother's root and draw it as violent chimpanzees warring for tribal territory? Or to put it another way, this or this? <laughs> and if it's the latter, and it is, it's kind of a rhetorical question, is that really self-hatred or is it actually Jewish cultural pride? That's another uh, rhetorical question. Uh, it's Jewish cultural pride. And the comics in this collection are an articulation of that pride. Um, but because they express pride in non-Zionist and secular terms, they've, they've been dismissed as the opposite of proud. In fact, the most ardent and vocal defenders of the faith have dismissed them as self-hating. Why is Jewish pride called self-hatred? Why are Jews who stand with an anti-Nazi activist termed self-haters who should be barred from inclusion in the Jewish communal tent? Whereas Jews who celebrate Nazi fanboys are considered the embodiment of authenticity and pride. That's Mort Klein, the head of the Zionist Organization of America, with Sebastian Gorka, Nazi fanboy. How do we enter this topsy-turvy universe in which some of the country's most prominent Jewish activists gave a standing ovation to the hero of, the, of American Nazism and the Ku Klux Klan? 
That's the reception Trump received at APEC's annual conference in 2016. To understand that, you'll have to buy my book. <laughs> but briefly, we're at the tail end of a culture war that's defined Jewish authenticity for a century. Because when Zionists emerged on the scene over 100 years ago, they weren't just aiming to create a Jewish state. They were trying to refashion the very image and essence of the Jew. After centuries of anti-Semitic imagery, they were gonna turn the tides and create new Jewish prototype of farmers and fighters. Oh, I'm sorry, that's North Korea. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't know how that happened, I'm sorry, apologies. Anyway, the images are amazing. This is from a, an advertisement for a Teuton machine from 1908 that literally promised to turn Jews into Teutons. Um, yeah. By the way, there, there's like 18 men here, there's a woman there, there's also one woman here, so I, it's, you know, it shows they're progressive. Um, but they didn't simply envision a reborn Jew. They also depicted the diaspora Jew, a physical, and emo uh, a physical and emotional state that they were trying to leave behind that was inferior. Here are some uh, lithographs by the Art Nouveau Zionist artist Ephraim Moshe Lillian, which depicted diaspora Jews as covered in barbed wire, sitting on a sinking boat next to the literal embodiment of death. And here's one of his drawings reproduced on a stamp in Israel. This Nazi image of Aryan versus Jew could have been used with little alteration in a Zionist pamphlet about new Jew versus diaspora Jew. To this day, Zionist thought needs its foil, and the foil is not the Palestinian, the foil is the Jew. I know this is where it gets very preachy, and I'm sorry, but I am my father's son, and those books had an effect on me. So my diaspora boy character is a satire of a century of hatred, what I would call genuine self-hatred, by the architects and ideologues of Jewish national rebirth. That quote, he is ridiculous and hateful to all men of high standards, is not from Mein Kampf. It's how Max Nordau, one of the architects of Zionism, referred to diaspora Jews. And it didn't stop with the establishment of Israel. Whether it's intellectuals, Israeli writer, Jews in France are partial Jews. By the way, I love the ad on top. Plant a tree for only $18. You're a partial Jew, but plant a full tree. <laughs> or government ministers, Israeli justice minister, assimilation of diaspora Jews fulfills Hitler's vision. Or the prime minister, no future for diaspora Jewry. Or state-run ads urging Israelis to serve diaspora Jews from being lost through intermarriage. Or state finance propaganda outfits bifurcating Jewish history between death camp despair on the one hand and military conquest on the other. It's different than the old lithographs, but it's the exact same theme. I still remember visiting the Diaspora Museum in Tel Aviv, Israel's national edifice dedicated to chronicling the way Jews live outside of Israel. I actually love the Diaspora Museum because it's the saddest museum in the world. <laughs> Look at these poor, miserable synagogue goers, these colorless corpses at prayer. True story, in Prague, the Nazis had intended to, uh, to create a museum of an extinct race. In Tel Aviv, the Israelis succeeded. There are over 100 figurines in the exhibits there. Not a single one is smiling. The term Kafka gets overused, I know, but Jesus Christ, this is diaspora's hallucinatory nightmare prison theme park. And that's not supposed to be a concentration camp, that's supposed to be a market square. Oh, hi, Franz. <laughs> if only Israel existed, our lives would have sunlight and color. I love Jews of world renown exhibit, empty. <laughs> By the way, possibly an electrical malfunction, but I am a polemicist and I will take what I need. <laughs> My favorite actually is the wedding display. Sweetheart, you're getting married today, but you live in the diaspora, so put on your miserable face. <laughs> Even the violinist is crying. Um, so, by the way, sometime in the past few years they got rid of these displays, but thankfully I had already taken about 500 photos. <laughs> now here's the thing, if you take a trip from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and you go to Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Memorial and Museum, you'll find a model of Auschwitz. From the changing area, to the gas chambers, to the crematoria, 
using the same style, the same colorless, tragic bodies that we saw in the Diaspora Museum. Now, it's understandable in Yad Vashem because it's mimicking the Nazi campaign of dehumanization. But it's not understandable in the Diaspora Museum unless you understand Zionism. When we speak about self-hatred, this is government-sponsored self-hatred created to sustain a national mythology. And when we in the diaspora buy into this, when a community dominated by non-Orthodox, not particularly Zionist members uh, grants uh, Orthodox and Zionist Jews the role of the truest forms of Jewish expression, we adapt a cultural identity of self-negation and self-hatred. Which brings us to the present moment and why I think Diaspora Boy uh, has additional urgency today. The comics in this book chronicle a decade in which claims of self-hatred were used to marginalize not only the culture but the politics of the American Jewish majority. As Israel embraced a demagogue who's waged war not only in marginalized communities but on the very institutions of democracy itself. Like Trump, anathema to American Jewish values. We had this test and we failed it. Back to rallies for a moment. I found another rally photo, this one from 10 years ago. That's me with a sign I drew of Abe Foxman rallying outside the 92nd Street Y when he was speaking there. By the way, I wasn't just some psychopath in the street. I wasn't alone. It was like a bunch of people were, were rallying. <laughs> we were rallying because Foxman had positioned the ADL against a congressional resolution recognizing the Armenian genocide. Now that is progression actually right there. From imaginary Nazis to actual Nazis to what? What's in between? A, a word? Word choice? Genocide? And I know it sounds bougie when sandwiched by Nazis to be arguing about words, but the reason for Voxman's genocide denial was Israel's relationship with Turkey. And it was in those years, the years chronicled in my book, that our community was twisting its values so much that it lost the ability to recognize genocide. So we shouldn't be surprised by where we are now. Here's a more recent example of the twist. In 2015, when Netanyahu coasted to re-election by spewing hatred against Palestinians, the average American Jew was mortified. Even the Obama administration, which by then had given up trying to make any change with the extremist Israeli government, was shocked and put out a couple statements of criticism, divisive rhetoric. But American Jewish leadership, from the ADL to the American Jewish Committee to AIPAC, put out the most horrified statements condemning not Netanyahu's bigotry, but the Obama administration itself for having the chutzpah to criticize a would-be autocrat. But, sorry, I'm getting a little pissed off now. I'm gonna try and take it down a notch uh, so I don't have a heart attack up here. <laughs> but normalization of Netanyahu is only one piece of the machinery that brought us here. Because we've learned that diaspora boy must defer to Israel man in all arenas, even at the expense of our very existence. As Trump offers neo-Nazis muted criticism, Netanyahu is largely silent. Because he can't go much further in the satirical universe of my comics than Israel man normalizing Nazism in the diaspora. Israeli minister, preserving ties with Trump, bigger priority than denouncing neo-Nazis. What's happening today is a belated punchline in Jews and got a lovely mazel tov from AIPAC. But if you're an actual Nazi sympathizer, you're kosher. As long as your Islamophobia exceeds your Jew hatred and you support an expansionist Israel. That's the head of the Zionist Organization of America celebrating Gorka. If we ever make Yad Vashem part two, this photo should be in the entrance. We have to be clear, these leaders are endangering not only Palestinians, not only marginalized communities, they're endangering us. And we let them because we bought into the diaspora boy paradigm. And look at this gift I got just last night, it's really sweet. This is this Nazi herd that I was preparing my presentation, he's like, oh yeah, I wanna give him an extra little, you know, a little clip to use. Nazi condemns Jews for betraying Israel. This is the end of satire right here. 
Anyway, we become so accustomed to equating anti-Semitism with criticism of Israel that we are unable to see the real deal when it takes over the country. And we've spent so many years allying with the most dangerous flames of fascism in Israel, and we've ostracized members of our own community who have stood up to those flames. Now, now that those flames are here, they're lapping at our feet, and we're like, what the hell is going on? And I want to emphasize, it's easy to have clarity after Charlottesville. There's no ambiguity to men shouting, Jews will not replace us. Charlottesville, <clears throat> excuse me, Charlottesville made the subtext the text. But we knew who Trump was, and we knew what he was doing long before he entered the presidential race. The fact that white Jews were not on the immediate target list was no excuse for silence on an individual or an organizational level. This is from a post-election comic when Nazi analogies actually are mandatory now, in my opinion. Publishing lists of crimes like the Nazis did. Here are Muslim refugees fleeing the US for Canada, which is not satire, it's actually happening today. Or a woman being carried off by ice. Hush, sweetheart, and be careful with your analogies lest you cheapen the sanctity of the Shoah. Just to be clear, if our history and collective memory is only used as blinders when similar horrors start befalling other peoples, then our history is worthless. By the way, I think on some level, the Jewish right knows they fucked up, and they're never going to admit it, but like, it's, it's happening like, on some level. And I know it's because I have a comics email list, which maybe a couple of you are on. Uh, it's a dreaded list, and I apologize for adding you to it. I try only to do it when people want it at this point. But back in the day, I would add people um, you know, willy-nilly, so to speak. Uh, and one time, some guy, I don't know, sent me an email, and he had CC'd when he went to BCC, and it was like every single right-winger in the universe, and I couldn't help but just take him. <laughs> and it was probably wrong. Um, they never replied, and I always assumed they just filtered me into non-existence. Um, until now. Now they're suddenly replying. Now, with the Nazi comics, they're replying. That's when they suddenly asked to be removed from the list. Like this, for instance. That's Mort Klein again, and the head of the Republican Jewish Coalition, both of whom had gone after Keith Ellison while supporting Donald Trump. It's a little Hanukkah card. The American Jewish right reacts to Keith Ellison lighting Hanukkah candles with constituents. Goddamn anti-Semites while they're giving hand jobs to Ku Klux Klan members. <laughs> and suddenly I'm getting replies. Marty Paris, get me the fuck off your foul list. <laughs> what? He never said anything before. Or this comment just after the election featuring Sheldon Adelson who had donated millions to Trump's campaign knowing how vile he is. Brett Stevens. Grotesque. <laughs> and then me, because I'm an asshole, I play dumb. Horrifying, in fact. This is me. We are living in a nightmare. I'm glad the comic stirred you, and I hope you'll do whatever you can to oppose what is happening. Sorry for the sanctimony, but anyway, he misunderstood. You don't get it. I think your cartoon is grotesque. Thanks, Brett. Thanks. I appreciate it. Nobody wants to exterminate the... I don't know if he talks like this, by the way, but, you know, whatever. Nobody wants to exterminate the Palestinians. Depicting Sheldon Adelson the way Der Sturmer used to caricature evil Jews is wretched. Whatever you think of the mannerist politics, you need to take a hard look at yourself and your easy assumptions. Okay, Brett. I replied, Brett, I was kidding. I know you don't like this sort of satire, although it's possible you don't understand any sort of satire. And I know you reflexively equate dissent from Likud extremism with anti-Semitism. And then, because I'm immature, not proud of this, I threw his last line back at him. You need, you need to take a hard look at yourself and your assumptions. No response. Oh, then this one, depicting Jared Kushner as a Nazi. Uh, we got Alan Dershowitz, who's been defending... Yeah. Are you proud of me? I mean, let him know. Alan Dershowitz, who's been defending Trump and even advising him on his Muslim ban, thought this was disgusting. I tried to be gracious and, you know, kind of felt bad he was leaving, actually, you know? He was like the silent guy who was always on my list. 
And then he replied with this, Nazi symbols should be reserved for Nazis and not for the grandson of Holocaust survivors. Which was odd since Dershowitz himself compared Richard Goldstone to Joseph Mengele after Goldstone chronicled Israel's and Hamas's human rights uh, cr war crimes, actually, during the Gaza War of 2009. Anyway, my point here is I'm not a Freudian, uh, but I think this shows that they realized after the election that having insisted on blind allegiance to Israel's extremism might have helped lead our community here. And I want to emphasize, even after Charlottesville, Jews are not on the verge of losing our rights. But debate around opposing a bigoted dem demagogue should not start and end with, will that bigoted demagogue round up my own family? Which is why it's astonishing that even after Charlottesville, after American Jews were experiencing unprecedented alarm, fear, and panic, the Zionist Organization of America again invited America's normalizer of neo-Nazis to its annual dinner. And the head of the Jewish Council for Public Affairs warned local affiliates not to call for the firing of white supremacists and Nazi sympathizers because wealthy donors, i.e. Israel hawks, would be angry. They were concerned Jews would be angry, angry Nazis were fired. And you want to know the definition of chutzpah? They were simultaneously raising money off the fear of Nazis. Meanwhile, a New York Times, an Israeli intellectual, and I'm using that term loosely, use Charlottesville to retread Israel man diaspora boy as if he were trying to sell my books for me. This is uh, Daniel Gordas. He actually quoted Max Nordau, who's the basis of so many of these diaspora boy quotes, and he quoted him approvingly. Max Nordau, a Zionist, idol, a Zionist ideologue and contemporary of Theodore Herzl, wrote about the need for Musuljuden, or muscular Jews, who would put victimhood behind them. This is from Max Nordau. The diaspora Jew is ridiculous and hateful to all men of high standards. Anyway, I'm gonna try and move on a little bit. Um, yeah, so I, you know, we're in a state of emergency in America, but we're also in a, in a state of emergency as Jews. You know, um, the silencing of diaspora Jews, or more precisely, the silencing of the secular, not particularly nationalist majority, has helped pave the way to today. And it's why so many of our organizations have been silent, complicit, or grappling with how to respond. We have to stop allowing people who side with Nazis define Jewish authenticity for us. And I'm going to end with this comment from my book. It's from 2015, We Thought We Were Free. It's when Netanyahu made his end run around Obama to deliver an address to Congress to try to scuttle diplomacy with Iran. American Jews were largely horrified by this. He claimed to be representing us. He did not represent us, or most of us. We thought, it's only four panels. We thought, <laughs> it's 25 panels. <laughs> we thought we were, no, it's four. We thought we were safe here. We knew it. Land of the free, it, it resonated. In this country, we could be ourselves and we could build lives without looking over our shoulders. Ethnic intolerance, racial prejudice, nationalist hysteria, we faced it all wherever we lived. But not here, not anymore. It couldn't happen here. But just when we got uncomfortable, we learned of an ugliness heading our way. The government opening its doors to the very incitement we thought was a thing of the past. We had thought we were safe, free from xenophobia, free from demagoguery, but we'd taken it all for granted. On that day, we knew, no matter how safe we think we are, we might never really be free. And at the end, it's not a demagogue here, but Netanyahu on the television. The twist of the comic is that the danger of diaspora Jews is not diaspora, but the leader from Zion who claims to be our leader too. A man who represents all the forces we've come to abhor in our modern experience. But substitute Netanyahu for Trump or Trump for Netanyahu at the end, and it's no longer satire. It's literal. It's what's happening now. It's what we're experiencing. But we knew this was coming. We laid the foundation. We deferred to our demagogues because Diaspora Boy must not speak out. But it's time to speak out. It's time to stop allowing people who have leapt into bed with Nazis to define Judaism for us. 
It's time to recognize the diaspora experience as the cornerstone of our Jewish lives, and it's time to excommunicate the fascists. This book is a new articulation of Jewish pride, away from Zionist self-hatred, away from Netanyahu, and away from Trump. And I hope it helps us begin to chart a path away from the current nightmare. Thank you. was Ellie Valley, author of Diaspora Boy, Comics on Crisis in America and Israel. And before that, we were talking to Karim Estefan. Now, if you guys want to have those books, either Karim Estefan's Assuming Boycott or Ellie Valley's Diaspora Boy, you can go to give to wbai.org, type in the word Finkelstein, F-I-N-K-E-L-S-T-E-I-N, and you will get access to a three-book package, which includes Assuming Boycott, edited by our guest Karima Stefan, and which also includes Diaspora Boy, Ellie Valley's book, and a book by Norm Finkelstein, Method of Madness. And it also includes a really nice tote bag from Or Books. Again, make sure you become Patreon supporters so you can hear the rest of our interview with Kareem, which is joined by Adam Johnson host of Citations Needed podcast. The Katie Helper Show is produced by Florence Burrow Adams with help from Joshua Bregman. Our theme song is by The Ballet. You can follow me on Twitter at KTHelps. That's the letter K, the letter T-H-A-L-P-S. And Gabe at Gabe underscore Pacheco. Use the hashtag KTHelpsShow. That's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S-H-O-W. If you want to reach out to us or tweet about us, rate and review us on iTunes. Like our Facebook page, which is just the Katie Helper Show. Thanks so much for listening to the Katie Helper Show.